Hello, everyone. This is Noah. And I'm Simon. And welcome to the Resolve Podcast. We're your resource for all things mental health, academic success, and personal growth. Devoted to helping students thrive and build the resilience to succeed in school and in life. Alexandra Reynolds, welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much for coming on uh, to speak to us. And yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I am a, well, I used to be a stay-at-home mom. Now I am a freelancer working within the OCD community. I am a mom to a beautiful four-year-old boy, and I am an IOCDS advocate So I have been an advocate within the OCD community for about two years now. Um, IOCDF advocate for one, and I've had OCD pretty much my whole life. I think I first remember symptoms from when I was about four or five years old. So you're working, IOCDF is the International OCD Federation, and we know you're doing amazing work there for the community. So tell us at four or five years old, what you were experiencing, what was happening at four or five years old? Yeah, so I think at four or five, maybe even six, what I remember the most are um, ruminations, ruminating on really heavy existential topics. I think that most little kids don't worry about things like death and dying and, you know, the death of my loved ones. I remember being really afraid to go to school because I was scared that if I left, you know, my mom or my brother's side, that something horrible would happen to them. And so I would have these, um, you know, I guess tantrums when I had to go to school, especially if I felt like something bad was going to happen because the weather was bad. I, uh, I remember organizing as part of my play, thinking that it was fun, (laughs) but it wasn't. And um, trying to, this is weird, trying to line my socks up. And like, I would take all my clean socks and put them out on the bed and try to figure out the ones I wore together by the markings on the socks and then trying to pair them up that way because they were all just the same white socks, but I wanted to match them up correctly. I think that your early story here is so important because it talks about two different types of experiences with OCD. One is more well-known. The other is less well-known. I want to just, we'll we'll kind of gloss over a little bit the more well-known story. The more well-known story is you had to arrange your socks a certain way in a certain pattern. Now, some people are very neat in general and are, let's say, perfectionistic in a certain level, but it doesn't cause them so much. It's just part of their personality. We call that OCPD, obsessive compulsive personality disorder. People um, have quirks and things that they need to be a certain way, but there isn't an existential dread if there weren't. There aren't this this big bad fear um, that's going on. So what were you afraid about if you didn't arrange the socks the right way? You know, with that one, it wasn't so much a fear as it was a discomfort. So it was that if I didn't get 
the socks together the way they were when they'd been worn together, then it didn't feel right. It felt really incomplete. And that gave me kind of this uncomfortable, anxious feeling inside. And so I felt like I just, I had to get them right. If, if I don't get them right, then, you know, I, I can't move on with my day. You're just frozen in time. Yeah. yeah. And so you had to do it, but once you did it, did you find that you had to do that more or that the standards increased or that it had temporary relief or did it really solve the issue for you? No, it didn't. Solve, it didn't solve the issue at all. I think that doing it, um, honestly, I would get caught in a loop and the more I did it, the more I felt that I had to do it. And like you said, my standards increased where it's like, okay, but did I really match that one up right? What if I didn't match that one up right? And so I would spend hours trying on this just ridiculous activity. I didn't realize it was ridiculous at the time, but just this completely irrational activity. And the more I did it, the more distressed I got and the more anxious I felt. And, you know, when I, when I finally would tear myself away I would just move on to other things that needed to be done, you know, just right. And that's the sort of story that most people know. It's, and maybe even they don't know, maybe they only know about the behavior that somebody's doing something sort of peculiar and very specific that needs to be a certain way when it comes to cleanliness. But there's a deep inner world of pain that comes with that that's really really hard that you've highlighted it's just never good enough but in this impossible to please kind of way and it and it's it can be maddening for somebody to experience but then there's something else that you mentioned here which is this fear of loss from such a young age i can't go away something's going to happen this separate almost part part separation anxiety experience for you that you also categorize as OCD. So why don't you tell us about what that is like from the intrusive thoughts all the way to the behaviors? What is this type of OCD um, and how does it work for you? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is kind of the the part of OCD that goes unseen, which are what, you know, we call the mental compulsions and the, the you know, the mental rituals. And it's the stuff that people with OCD like me we're, we're doing in our heads that most of the time you're not going to see unless, you know, it causes a change in our outward behavior. And, you know, for me as a kid, I remember laying in bed at night, you know, most children, when they go to sleep, they, they sleep well, we say they sleep like babies, but I, I did not have good sleep. I had insomnia because I would lay in bed and my thoughts were so numerous and so loud that they, they kept me awake. It, I always characterized it as having a lot of trains in my head and those trains were the thoughts and they were constantly rattling by and crashing into each other because they were, there were just so many of them. And so I would, I would think about, you know, what if, why are we here? What are, what are we doing here? What is the point of our existence? And, you know, everyone wonders these things, but when you talk about like a four or five-year-old thinking about these things, it's kind of, you know, excessive. And so then that would lead to, well, I feel like an alien. I don't feel like I belong here. 
you know, oh my gosh, what if something happens to my mother? What if I lose my mom? I'm going to be all by myself and I love my mom so much. Oh my goodness, what if something happens to my little brother? I can't let that happen. And so then I would feel tired the next day and also hyper-responsible because I lived with this fear inside of my, my heart and my chest that something awful was going to happen to them and that it was going to be my fault because I wasn't going to be there to protect them. So that manifested as like this, this clinginess, you know, and this hyper, hyper awareness of everything that they were doing and this overprotectiveness as a child, you know, because I felt like I was the sole protector, <laughs> which is so silly when I look back on it. But I really, I felt like that was my job. When, when most people at that age are feeling protected by so many you felt you had to save the world from from these stories in your head. So part of it was was you know thinking into the night and and maybe were there some like thinking patterns that you did that made you feel like you averted the danger? Like how did like when you talked about the mental compulsions, what would you do to respond to some of these intrusive thoughts in in your head? Yeah. So I think you know at night when I lay in bed, it was more just you know rumination you know I think that's when a lot of people even people without OCD tend to ruminate a little bit you know we think about what happened during the day or we think about you know what we could have done better but I mean this was a fixation you know to the point where I couldn't stop the thoughts so it was just turning you know my friend Chris always says it's like a cow chewing on cud which sounds gross but I was basically repetitively chewing these thoughts over and over in my head without resolution trying to figure out you know, the answer to life's existential problems. And I, you know, I thought if I thought hard enough, I could really solve them. Um, you know, as far as protecting my, my family, it was, you know, that magical thinking. I really thought that if I just stayed close to them, that that would fix everything and that they would be okay. And so, you know, my, my compulsion was really just to, to cling and stay close to them. And, and in that way, I was sort of getting reassurance that if I had my eyes on them, that nothing bad would happen. And that's why you didn't want to leave them. Yeah. And I see this a lot in my own practice too, that people, you started by saying it was mostly mental and there's a huge component of this repetitive thinking. And just by the way, for people listening, there's a time and a place to to think about think about the future, about how you want to be better, how you want to live. There's a way to think about the past. What did I do that I could improve upon? All of these things are the human experience. And maybe some people don't do them enough. But unfortunately, uh, people that are struggling with this, with rumination, are doing it in a way where they don't actually solve anything. They don't actually sit down and pen to paper and really think using the, the skill of thinking. They just repeat the pattern. And that's the sort of rumination that you talked about, the excessive thinking. But very shortly into this conversation, you've already gotten into that it wasn't really just mental. You did things like you needed to maybe keep geographical distance to them or track where they were going. Talk, talk to us about some of that. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, there are compulsions that are purely mental, but a lot of times we don't realize that we're actually you know, even though they're mental, there's still things that we are 
actively doing, even if it's all in our head. So even if no one knew that I was keeping track of, you know, my mom and brother's whereabouts, that's all in my head, right? There's, there's still things that I'm doing. I'm upset because I have to leave them, you know, or I'm following them around from place to place. So I think a lot of times we think that maybe everything is completely all up in our head, but there are subtle, subtle things that we may be doing. And I mean, even the, the process of tracking or checking, like checking where someone is or checking our body sensations or keeping track of things that we deem contaminated, those are still behaviors. Yeah, they, they fall under the overt behavior category. And I think it's so important. And we see this in in in, in more uh, modern types of cognitive behavioral therapy, like ACT, for example, that be, so you can't control thoughts, but thinking is a is a behavior. Thinking is 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 something that you do, and tracking is part of thinking, and reviewing is part of thinking. These are actual engaged behaviors. At some point, though, we feel we've lost control over them, just like we've lost control over when we have ticks or we have a repetitive body behaviors. They feel like they're not our choice. But that takes a lot. That's because we don't know that we have more control over where we take our thinking. But it sounds like for you, there was a lot of a, a, an inner world. Now, how much did people around you know that you were trying to save the world around them? Did they? Did did family members know what was going on, or did they just think, "Oh, you're really clingy here"? Or how did how did you were you received by the people around you? Yeah, that's such a good question. Um, you know, my parents noticed that I was a peculiar child. <laughs> and um, they, you know, unfortunately, in my culture, and I think also in that time, mental health was just not something that people did. You know, therapy was not something that you went and did. That was for sick people. And so they, you know, they tried different ways to get me to stop, you know, and the more my behavior unfortunately increased and my fears kind of grew, the more frustrated they became. So they would just kind of, you know, I say ridicule me because it'd be like, well, come on, you know, snap out of it. There's, you know, it's just mind over matter. You don't need to be this way. You used to be so happy as a baby. What happened? And it just kind of, I think, eventually made me keep it all in, you know? So there came a point where even though they knew I was odd or different, there just wasn't anything that would be done about it. And my part of the bargain was to just keep it all inside as much as I could. Did that change at all throughout your life? No, um, it didn't. So I... I didn't get help until after I left my parents' home. So that's a long time. And I know that this is a big topic because you've gone into advocacy. And I think that that makes sense because you had felt like you didn't have a voice. And, I, and I'm sure there's a way that you can understand their, their, not to get into who's right and who's wrong, but just that you understand why it was so hard for them to understand. Is there, is there like an understanding about that? 
I can understand. I mean, I think that there's a lot of reasons, but I think that the biggest one really is this this cultural aspect. You know, when they were growing up, they didn't have access to mental health resources and it wasn't something that was encouraged. It was something that was discouraged, um, both culturally and within their own family units. And so I think that they, you know, they brought those beliefs into their family. And, you know, I think when we talk about like generational trauma and generational cycles, these are the cycles that are so important to recognize and break, Um, you know, and understand that it's not necessarily their fault. Certainly they could have done more and I wish they'd done more, but it's, it's something that's important to stop. And, and it's, it's like this momentum of history confronting you and then you having to say, okay, I'm going to take the best of all of that. Cause I don't want to reject the beauty. And I know you're involved very culturally specific and I want to take the best of my, of, of what I have, what, my, what I am, what I, what I come from and what I am. Um, well, well not perpetuating parts of it that, that don't speak to, to, to the reality of today. How, has there been understanding now from your from family and culture? Like, are you able to talk a little bit more about it now? Um, a little bit. Like my my mom is more interested in it, and I know that she actually keeps up with the International OCD Foundation and like gets mail from them, which is so funny. Like to see how far she's come, and she'll ask me about it. My dad knows that I work in mental health, and I think he's proud of that. But there's still kind of a, we don't speak about it too much because I think he still, he doesn't get it. He was brought up to, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and and man up. And it's not the macho thing to do to, you know, go to therapy and all that stuff. So he, he struggles more. But what I think is so important is that an acceptance a hope, keeping hope, because it sounds like people are making small movements that will be, that are meaningful movements. And instead of, you know, maybe, maybe at this point, whoever's listening has a hard time opening up to family. Maybe there's certain prevailing attitudes that are really tough. So find people that you can speak to, speak to a professional, join support groups. We're going to talk about that, join other ways. But I think it's so important to still maintain hope instead of getting resentful and saying this is what it is and it's never going to change. Planting seeds and hoping that that things can improve. And it sounds like even small things are are happening in your own little world there that are meaningful. And I'm sure a lot of people are grappling with that as well. Yeah, absolutely. You never know, you know, just by sharing even a little bit about your story, like who who you're going to reach and what kind of changes you'll make, even if it's not immediate. Now, this is going to lend itself or lean into a discussion about advocacy. So at some point, not only did you and have you been so um, receptive to and seeking help and have gotten help and you have a great support system around you, but at some point you decided that individually getting help is not enough. I'm going to speak about my experience. Why? 
<laughs> yeah. So that is, that's a fun story. So um, when, shortly after I had my son, COVID came and, you know, pre-COVID, my life was completely different. I was working as a medical coder and then I, you know, I had my son and so I had stayed at home with my son for a little while with the expectation I'd go back to work and things, you know, after COVID just didn't pan out that way. The OCD that I'd been kind of white knuckling my way through got extremely bad and um, culminated in me basically banishing my husband to our basement for 10 days because he was going in and out of the house to work. And I was convinced that he was gonna bring COVID into the house and that something awful was gonna happen to me and the baby. And at that point, I went back to therapy and I said, you know, I am going to commit myself to this because I can't live this way. I, I became completely agoraphobic and I was miserable. I not only went back to therapy, but I decided to go to support group. And so the support group was where I really finally felt the shame, the isolation, the stigma, sort of lift off of me. I had never been around other people with OCD and there was such a relief. So it's just this mental, almost physical relief to just be around people who understood me and knew what I was going through and were empathetic, held me accountable. You know, it just, it was like taking off a mask and just breathing a sigh of relief. And at that point I said, okay, group isn't enough. I want more. <laughs> and so I, I set up my little Instagram page and I said, you know, I don't really see any other Latinx doing this. So I'm not only going to share my story, but I want to be a voice for, for Latinx folks like me who, who maybe culturally we've been discouraged to talk about our mental, mental health. And so it kind of took off from there. And once I set up my page, I said, you know what? No, this isn't enough either. I want to go volunteer for the IOCDF. And so I, I put in an application to volunteer with them and it kind of just snowballed from there. But it was just born out of this desire to, to be in community with my peers because I feel like there's when you have OCD, there's nothing like being in community with others who have OCD too. And also to, to really do something you know, affect the change for the Latinx community. You know, I don't want people to wait the way I waited to get help. So there's two things that have stood out there. Number one is that you, part of your healing is the community part of it. It's not that it's, I'm reached a certain level of improvement in my OCD and therefore now I want to share it's more that part of your experience of wellness within recovering and not letting OCD take over your life is that you're a part of a part of the public sphere public part of the public space and I think one benefit from that that I that I really wish more of my clients were able to access is that OCD Oftentimes, I am the only other person in their world. I look at OCD as like a created world. Someone They have a whole worldview. They have a whole set of rules about reality and how it operates. And when somebody like myself comes in, 
I'm able to poke and challenge and and hopefully adjust that world and make that world a bit more flexible, things like that. When you join a community, though, when you join a group, that you are opening your world up tremendously because now you're seeing that two things are happening. One is that you can tell other people about that world and therefore that world is a little bit less lonely and a little bit less scary. And two, you see that even though everybody has different fears and different experiences, their mechanism, the meta world that they live in is the same. Every All these people are struggling with this exact same experience in different ways. And therefore that world, you take it a little less seriously because you realize it's a pattern that most people are struggling with. And it's not really the be all and end all of reality. Um, there's a meta world that many people share. And I just see that that's really, I don't know, maybe that's part of what you've experienced. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about what the biggest benefits of sort of being a speaker, an advocate in, uh, in this world on the social media, what that's been like for you. Yeah, I think that, you know, there's a misconception that you have to be at a certain point in your healing or your recovery to to advocate or to share your story or even just to join support group. And that's not true. Um, you don't have to be healed or recovered. I mean, I know when I started my, you know, journey and sharing my story, I was struggling probably the worst that I've struggled in a long time. And I found finding community and sharing my story to be so instrumental in my recovery because I had other people who were like me help me along my journey. People who were able to not just listen, but empathize and share their stories with me, which I'll always be grateful in order to help me along my recovery and I think that you know going to a therapist is amazing and it's necessary right going to an OCD specialist is necessary but there are things that are just more powerful and make more sense sometimes when they come from your peers you know some of the tools I learned in therapy I didn't quite grasp until I had one of my peers explain how they used it you know or sometimes I learned a tool and then I didn't know how to practice it on my own, but they helped me. And even sometimes just the, the encouragement, not reassurance, but the encouragement that I needed came from hearing about how one of my you know peers had overcome something. And sometimes it was just those little bits of hope that I wasn't alone and that if I kept going, I could you know one day feel much better they, they just mattered so much. And that's really, uh, sadly, is, is a little lost for a lot of people. It's, I mean, COVID aside, which was super lonely for so many, uh, we're very, in, we have a very strong individual ethos mm -hmm. and that makes it really hard to, if we were just individuals, it would be easy, but we're not. We're embedded in in a lot of communities, and and we need that, and and we're trying to figure that out. And for mental health, that's super important. Now, I think there's a contradiction that I'm always trying to understand, is that you're an influencer on Instagram. So, I two things about that that I've noticed. One is that it is the OCD community 
of advocates is the, probably one of the sweetest places on Instagram. It's very, I, I, I don't like Instagram, but when I do check it out, it's always warm. It's encouraging. People are very grateful for each other. There's a lot of appreciation and love and connection. But that's not the experience of most people going on to social media and going on to Instagram. Uh, I struggle with because I help so many people, for example, and I'm wondering how this has impacted you, where you, you, and we know this is obviously well documented, you're seeing people's lives, you're seeing idealized versions of people's lives. One of the Ten Commandments is lo tachmod, don't covet. Um, and it's human nature to constantly look to other people for to look at what they have and it's all in your face and it's creating a lack. It's literally creating a hole in people's hearts that they feel they need something more of. And I'm actually working with so many people, especially students on detoxing a little bit away from that. Um, it's part of my Sabbath practice, detoxing away from that and the mental health benefits that can come from that. So how do you navigate the tricky territory of being online with social media and, and, and how do you deal with it? Yeah, that's such a good question. And I think it's it's hard at first, you know, and I still I'm not even going to say it's easier now because you you can still reach burnout. And I think with OCD, you know, there has to be care taken that, you know, checking social media and responding to people doesn't become compulsive in and of itself. You know, I think one of the biggest struggles that I had was um finding myself feeling over responsible for everyone and everyone's problems and really really like I mean just caring so much and I'm not going to say too much because I don't think you can care too much but just feeling overly responsible with this, this caring that I had for other people and you know how they were doing and you know how they were feeling and how where they were in their recovery and so you know we have to recognize that as you know peer support our job is to you know share our experience when it's appropriate to offer hope and offer encouragement but ultimately it's up to the individual to create change and to you know seek help and we're just there to kind of facilitate that so I think learning my place in that was part of it I think that social media in and of itself just checking the app you know it's designed to be addictive it wants you to spend time on it and so what I had to learn to do is set limits, you know, okay, I'm going to go on Instagram at this time to post, I'll interact. And then after that, I'm not going to check again until the evening, you know, and I always make sure I have a free day in my schedule, sometimes two or three, depending on how I'm feeling to just not be on social media at all. I think it's healthy and I think it's necessary for us as human beings to be present in our lives and to have things away from social media. You know, I think something I found myself doing was being on there so much that it kind of consumed my world. And I said, you know, this isn't the person I wanna be. I wanna be a present wife. I wanna be a present mother. I want to be present with myself. And so, I think social media can kind of help almost in a way, even though it can be negative, help us see where those areas for improvement are and make those changes. So you've really figured out, and I'm, I'm guessing it's ongoing and not every day is perfect with that, but you have figured out a way to be an, 
involved, engaged person, but not consumed by it? Yeah, I think so. I think, I think it, um, it's a learning curve, right? You know, because we get on something and it's exciting and it's new and, you know, it's addictive and it's fun. And so we kind of get consumed by it. But I think most people, you know, even if we have some mental illness there, we do learn eventually how to navigate it. And, and, you know, I think the thing about social media that I keep in mind is social media isn't my whole life and I don't work for it. It works for me, you know, and it's there to help me be a conduit for community and communication, but it doesn't need to be everything about me. Deep psychological drives play out, play themselves out on social media, especially about validation, feeling good about yourself. And I think that there's a really positive part to that. So you share so much. And of course, you get a lot of validation, whether it's through messages, through likes, through comments, et cetera, et cetera. Just tell us what it what it feels like when when oh you gosh. when you get that validation. What's the experience like for you? It's it's so interesting. I always say, you know, to my therapist, within the community, like you you become someone, right? Like it's it's a strange dichotomy. Outside of the community, I'm not I'm just nobody. I'm <laughs> a wife and a mom and a friend and you know, a daughter, but I'm not like anybody recognizable. But within the community, you kind of become whether you want to or not, a, a figure. And I think with that, the biggest thing that I noticed is with all the validation, the messages saying, thank you, there comes sort of a, a sense of responsibility, a responsibility to offer hope, a responsibility to kind of live up to people's expectations and also kind of a, a, an imposter syndrome. <laughs> Because it's like, who am I to tell people how to get better? Especially when I struggle myself sometimes. Who am I to to offer people hope? And you know, I think it's 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 such a good feeling, but at the same time, it's almost triggering in a sense because you know, really anyone can be an advocate. It's it's humbling. I think it's it's a, a massive feeling, but in the end, it's very humbling because you're invited to become a part of people's journeys, which is so amazing. But the whole time you're thinking, oh my gosh, how am I doing this? Who am I to do this? And what in the world? <laughs> well, look, I, I, I think imposter syndrome is so overrated um, because look, Moshe, Moses, the, you know, bringing brought down the revelation of the 10 commandments and you know had a, the highest connection with god and however you want to conceptualize these things the highest connection you know led the the israelites out of slavery and when he was called by god to do his job he said who am i i can't do it i haven't I, i'm who am i i don't know how to speak i don't know how to do this it took him a very long dialogue before he agreed to take on the responsibility so if, if the greatest leaders, and, and if you listen to any biography of great people, nobody says, yeah, I was so self-assured and so high on myself. And no, everybody's experiencing thoughts that they're not good enough. And and so what? Um, it's about what, what you do in response to them. And why not you is really the question. Why not you? Um, you, you, you have... Uh, 
all of us, why not us? If there's things that we're thinking about doing, why not do it? Um, so I do think imposter syndrome can be maddening for people, but I'm often like, what, what's the big deal? Okay. There's nothing new under the sun. I take it as a beautiful exposure. You know, yeah. so every time I have those, who am I or why me thoughts, I like to think, well, I may feel this way, but I'm going to do it anyway. And the scarier, the better. Bring it on, OCD. And I just move forward, you know, because the truth is we need community. We need people to offer hope and we need people to be there for us. And if I can help someone even a tiny bit as much as others have helped me, then that's that's really all that matters. You know, the best validation I get is really when I'm speaking to someone one-on-one -on -one and they tell me how much something I said or, you know, posted meant to them. Can you tell us your favorite or most meaningful story about the work that you've done and how it's made an impact in some small way or some big way? Oh my goodness. Yeah. Maybe you can I tell us two I... stories. Oh my gosh. My, I think my favorite is, um, gosh, quite some time ago, I forget what kind of meeting it was, but we had an IOCDF meeting with the community and we went into some, you know, kind of what we call on Zoom breakout rooms where we had different community groups meeting all together. And I was in charge of the Latinx breakout room discussion group. And there was a girl there who had just come out of high school and was going into college. And her story was so similar to mine in so many ways. And like me, she was struggling with wanting to get help for her OCD, knowing that she had OCD and not being able to while living at home because of her family's cultural values and feeling that in getting help, now that she was going to college and out on her own, that she was going against her family and their values and that she was going against her culture and feeling all of the guilt and shame that came with that. And I was able to share, you know, parts of my story with her and it felt so good just to validate her feelings, let her know that there was someone else who had been through the same and give her hope that it didn't always have to be that way and that she could get help if she wanted it and one day be in recovery as well and maybe even help change some of her family's views. It, it just, it felt like such a powerful experience. You know, there was no certainty in the end of it. There was no super happy ending, but just, it was so powerful. I feel like that's what advocacy is. It's like you said, it's planting the seeds. Mm -hmm. That was the word I was thinking there, planting the seeds. Absolutely. And, and, and being, uh, uh, you know, it's like a signpost. Everybody's, you know, in their own homes and then you come out and just say, Hey, this is something that is real. And this is something that you can talk about and you can find resources and you can find me and you can follow my story. Maybe people live a little vicariously through you. Maybe your voice is their voice in some way. I think, I think that that's okay. You know, not everyone wants to be an advocate. Not everyone, you know, feels the need to do that. And I think that that's, that's okay. 
you know, we're all advocates in a sense, right? We all make decisions every day and interact with others and stand up for ourselves and the things that we believe in. And I think that's, that's powerful in and of itself. You know, some of my second favorite story is my brother, my younger brother is, um, has always been resistant to therapy, always. And after I became an advocate, I started talking to him about it and talking more openly with him about my therapy. And to much to my surprise, one day he said, hey, you know, I think I have OCD too. Can you get me a referral to a therapist where I live? And I said, okay, are you really going to go? And he said, yeah, I'm thinking about it. A few weeks later, he calls me and says, yeah, I got help and I went to my first appointment and I have OCD too. So thank you. And wow. I was like, wow, that is just like, it was so, I don't want my brother to have OCD, right? I don't, but I'm so proud of him. And it's just amazing what we can do, even in our own personal lives, when we just talk to people. And we should talk to people, whether it's talking to people online or it's talking to people right in front of us, we should talk and invite conversations each on our own level to be able to do so. And so now you're crafting a new career a little bit. And I want to end this conversation, just learning a little bit about what you're doing with peer support. Yeah. So it's a, it's kind of a, a long-term goal, right? But I, I have found, and I, I remember thinking about this early in my journey that peer support meant, you know, it meant so much to me. The community meant so much to me that it's really been sort of a, a linchpin in my recovery and in how I honestly stay afloat, you know, with multiple diagnoses and the, the pressures of being mom and wife. And so I want, I want to be able to offer that to other people. And so long-term, I want to be doing, you know, one-on-one -on -one peer support with people, working alongside, you know, clinicians like yourself, Noah, to aid people. You know, I think that whether we're in active ERP or we're in sort of our maintenance phase where we're figuring ourselves out, sometimes there's a need for just that hope or that sort of encouragement that a therapist cannot provide. Maybe we don't have access to see, see a therapist as much as we, we need to or we want to, and we need something in between therapy. And I think that's where peer support could be such a, a wonderful aid. You know, short-term running support groups is, is something that I feel like I love and I want to do more of. It's, I don't know, there's nothing better to me than facilitating a room full of people and honestly just being accountable to each other and having a great conversation about their struggles and their wins and finding that community. Yeah, I mean, the possibilities are really powerful uh, to have a sort of a spectrum of care where you know, peer support groups are incredible because people are coming together to talk to each other. It's non it's non-professional, it's it's much less at stake. But there is when I say non-professional, what I mean is it's non-clinically professional like therapy, but it is a big response not to stress you out, but it's a big responsibility, as you know, <laughs> based on the stuff that you've already done. 
but it's it's a different care model and i think it's an extremely valuable care model and in fact i think it it's if i could imagine with my clients if there was somebody in between um to be able to to talk about things uh, to to know what's going on in the care team as part of the oh it's okay to know it to know what's going on with the care team um and to have somebody who's involved in that but is on peer to peer level will be so valuable um so yeah. these are amazing things to look out for that alexandra is getting up to soon yeah yeah i think just to piggyback off of that you know i think sometimes you know just like being latina right i think sometimes when we are of a certain culture we may feel more comfortable disclosing things to people who are part of our our tribe you know our culture and i think that very much like that sometimes when we have ocd and we have this deep shame that we carry around a lot of our our most you know kind of our darkest fears or our most taboo thoughts sometimes it's easier to disclose those things and and share them at first with someone who is a peer it's neither this nor that it's all and there's so many ands that we can do with with regards to this and i'm so excited to see about the things that that alexander is going to be up to um just to end off is there anything that you want to say that you didn't say yet Oh my gosh, I think the only thing I would want to do is just, you know, offer everyone out there who's listening, whether you're struggling with OCD or some other mental illness or even just struggling because the world is just wild and scary right now, is that through confronting our fears, through accepting uncertainty and learning to live with uncertainty as a part of life without judgment we can learn to have a full beautiful life no matter who we are you know acceptance and even ERP are not just for people with OCD i believe they're for everybody and we can all approach life with a little bit more curiosity and a little bit less need for certainty and gain benefit from it and there is so much hope for you and there is so much beauty in life still to be had and i just want to send so much love to everybody thank you so so much for your time and please check out alexandra's work and look out for some great opportunities for collaboration with with resolve and for amazing things that alexandra's up to and of course a disclaimer This podcast and all of our mental health learning and educational content is not therapy and is not a replacement for therapy. Please seek professional help if needed. Go to www.resolve2vs.ca to get the support you need. And that's all for now. We hope this was helpful in some small way. If you like our content, please subscribe and give us a five-star review wherever you are listening. Make sure to keep updated with all of our content on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. And of course, come check us out at www.resolve, that's resolve with two Vs, .ca to learn more about how our services can support your needs. Till next time, take care. Theme song for this podcast is done by the band Mokuse no Maguro.
in their song, Midnight Empty Street. <laughs> 